I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. This is KSL's Religion Today, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner, on KSL News Radio. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Pioneer Day is right around the corner, which is in honor of the tremendous sacrifice and struggle the Mormon pioneers made when they went on their trek from Nauvoo to Salt Lake City in 1847. I also wanted to talk about the death of Joseph Smith and some of the misconceptions about it, what actually precipitated it, and why it's so important. But before we do any of that, I wanted to, for the last time, because it's going to happen this coming Friday— wanted to invite everyone who is listening who's able to attend what I think will be quite an exciting and extraordinary event this Friday, July 28th at 7 p.m. Eloise Weaver, who's a wonderful Latter-day Saint woman who has been single for a long time uh, due to the death of her husband in a terrible car crash in which she almost died, and her husband also died, resulted in a near-death experience where she and her husband were in a head-on collision in Montana, and they embraced in the air before he said that he had to leave and she had to go back to raise their children. It was a very poignant experience, one that's quite tragic and one that also involved her eventually meeting some family members and reconciling with them, family members of those who were in the car that hit them head on. The driver had fallen asleep. Anyway, if you're interested in coming, uh, you are welcome to come. This is presented by the Utah chapter of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. The location is the county complex at 21st South and State Street in Salt Lake City. 2001 South State Street. It's free and open to the public. Everyone is welcome of any faith or no faith whatsoever. 7 o'clock to probably about 8 or maybe 8.15 p.m. Again, this Friday, July 28th, 7 p.m., 21st South State Street. If you have any questions about it or would like to be in touch, send me an email, send it to martinstanner at gmail.com 
and I'll be happy to give you additional details. So what actually caused the death of Joseph Smith? Some will say the Nauvoo Expositor. Some will say that it was just the fact that Latter-day Saints caused trouble, which is something that I totally disregard. The real reason was not the Nauvoo Expositor episode where the Nauvoo Express, or, or excuse me, the Nauvoo Press was um, destroyed. That was done by the Nauvoo Council. There are some who claim that was an illegal act. It was not. Several similar things had been held constitutional in different places in that era. Joseph Smith actually abstained from most of the efforts and decisions in the Nauvoo Expositor decision, which led to the press being destroyed. So what caused the death of Joseph Smith? Why did it happen? Why did the mob assemble? Why did they march to the jail, Liberty Jail, and kill Joseph and Hiram? The answer is a newspaper editor from a nearby town named Thomas C. Sharp. He was just a young guy at the time. He was age 26. So he was 12 years younger than than Joseph Smith. He was the owner of the Warsaw Signal, and he had this kind of tit-for-tat, back-and-forth series of editorials that between himself and Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was trying to defend himself and his responsive editorials that were published in other newspapers nearby. And then you had the final one. This is two weeks, less than two weeks from the time that Joseph Smith was killed. And this is what precipitated the death of Joseph Smith. Thomas C. Sharp, in his paper, The Warsaw Signal, wrote this against the Mormons, as he called them. Quote, War and extermination is inevitable. Citizens arise, one and all. Then he has three exclamation points. Can you stand by and suffer such infernal devils, all caps, to rob men of their property and rights without avenging them? We have no time for comment. Every man will make his own. Let it be made with powder and ball. Three exclamation points, close quote. So the gist of this was that he was telling people, come on, let's go over and kill him. Let everyone make their own comment with powder and ball, reference to guns. And then we had this extra edition, and he, he made, made this additional comment, quote, the prophet and his miscreant adherents should be demanded to surrender or war or extermination should be waged, close quote. So reacting to all of this, all these editorials that Thomas Sharp made, a mob on June 27, 1844, assassinated Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith in Carthage jail. That was the precipitating factor. There are a few people who were brought to trial. 
all were acquitted. Thomas C. Sharp was never even brought to trial. He was never charged. In today's uh, world, you could be charged with a number of things. So what happened after Joseph Smith was killed? That was in 1844. The pioneers left in 1847, three years later. In the ensuing time period, they completed the Nauvoo Temple. I have as a cherished item an actual photograph of the Nauvoo Temple, the first one. And its history is a little bit fascinating as well. On June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith was killed. The temple was dedicated a couple of years later, not quite two years, on April 30th of 1844. There were ordinances that were performed there during its construction. After the first pioneers left in 1847, on the night of October a year later, 1848, an arsonist set the temple on fire. And then on May 27th of 1850, a tornado came through and toppled one of its walls. Its owner had the remaining walls torn down. And that's the way the temple sat until the church reacquired the property and rebuilt the Nauvoo Temple. It's often said that the Nauvoo Temple was rebuilt exactly as it was before. There are two exceptions to that. One is that the angel Moroni on the top in the original temple was horizontal, horizontal as if he were flying through through the air. The current Nauvoo Temple has the angel Moroni standing upright with a trumpet, as is the custom with all others. The second difference is that we don't know exactly what the details were in the Nauvoo Temple, the original one. It's probably very, very close the way it's been reconstructed now, but we don't have all the details, so we do not know exactly for sure. One of the most fascinating things to me about the Nauvoo Temple and the things that happened before the pioneers left is that they did ordinance work for several years before they went on the pioneer trek west, realizing how important or believing how important it was to do work for those who had passed on to the next life. When we come back, more about the Trek West proper. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Stay tuned. More about the Pioneer Trek West. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We come back. Religion Today with host Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio. Welcome back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. One more comment about our event coming up this Friday. If you're interested in coming free and open to the public, 
you are invited. Come here, Eloise Weaver, a Latter-day Saint woman, talk about the near-death experience that she had. The location is the county complex, the auditorium, beautiful auditorium, by the way, at the corner of State Street and 21st South in Salt Lake City. 2001 South State Street, Salt Lake City, Utah, this Friday, July 28th at 7 p.m. If you have any questions about it, feel free to send me an email and I'll give you details. My email is martinstanner at gmail.com. All right, back to our story about the death of Joseph Smith and now the Pioneer Trek West. Brigham Young of course, led the church as the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. It was decided that the Latter-day Saints would not do well if they chose to stay in Nauvoo, so the decision was made to go west. It's often said that they knew in advance and there were visions that were had about the exact place that they would go, That may be true. However, it's also true that there were a number of different locations that were contemplated as a place for the Latter-day Saints to go. Places in Texas. San Bernardino, California was a choice that was considered. San Francisco area was one of the major ones. Several Latter-day Saints went around by ship and had spent some time there and sent letters to Brigham Young urging him to bring all of the Latter-day Saints to the San Francisco area. Oregon was also considered, but in the end, the church members trekked west and several different pioneer groups each summer, each spring and summer, until the railroad went through and made pioneer treks uh, by by wagon train and by handcart, not the proper or best way to go. The Vanguard group, the initial group in 1847, left winter quarters on April 5th at 2 p.m. That group, interestingly enough, consisted of 143 men, including three black Latter-day Saint elders and eight apostles, three women, and two children. They had 73 wagons, 93 horses, 52 mules, 66 oxen, 19 cows, 17 dogs, 163 chickens. They had enough supplies for an entire year. Every day, a bugle woke everyone up at 5 a.m. Travel began two hours later at 7 a.m. They stopped to camp at 8.30 p.m. And everyone was to be in their bedroll a half an hour later at 9 p.m. So your sleeping time was 9 to 5, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. They traveled six days a week and rested on Sundays. The distance they traveled was 1,035 miles 
It took them 82 days, which is averaging 12 and a half miles a day. They first arrived in Salt Lake City on June 21st, 1847. And now someone's going to say, wait, wait, it could have been the 21st because Pioneer Day's on the 24th. More about that later. They really did arrive, the first few from the Vanguard group, on July 21st. The full group, the complete group, came in on the 24th. As they were traveling across the plains, they encountered a number of others that were Latter-day Saints already who joined them. At Fort Laramie, there was a group of pioneers already waiting. The pioneers arrived in Fort Laramie on June 1st of 1847. They were joined by 43 Latter-day Saints from Mississippi. 14 families in nine wagons. They had left Mississippi in 1846. They left a year earlier than the pioneers did from winter quarters. And they had wintered in Pueblo, Colorado. And and, um, what happened was they all got together and they all came into the valley of the Great Salt Lake together. Fort Bridger is the place where the rest of those who were traveling, who were not Latter-day Saints, would have continued west. It was a place that ultimately, based on comments about a better route west by men named Hastings, had been made. So the pioneers left Fort Laramie, excuse me, Fort Bridger, and then they went through Echo Canyon, through this Hastings Cutoff, which had been the place that the Donner Party had gone the year before, and they ultimately arrived in the valley. I mentioned that they showed up on July 21st of 1847. There is a little park to commemorate that event, that's at 1700 South and 500 East in Salt Lake City. It's called First Encampment. People tell the story about how desolate and horrible it was. It was quite lush. There were seven different streams that came into the valley. There weren't any large trees because fires would periodically be started by lightning and go through the valley. But the grass quickly grew back and it was six or seven feet high around the streams. The valley was actually habited. There were people living there when the Latter-day Saints arrived. Who would that be, you might ask? Well, the Paiute Indians lived all around the Jordan River and became fairly good friends with the Latter-day Saints. The first group of those who came into the valley first as a whole encamped at what is now the City and County Building at 450 South State Street. There's a courthouse on the west side now and the City and County Building on the east side. That The, the east side is where the pioneers uh, first, first stayed, first, in, first camped. 
they had already planted potatoes and other crops before the 24th of July when the main body came in. They planted those on about what is today State Street and 3rd South. They were anxious to get those crops into the ground. Now, the first winter, they didn't have time for homes, so they scooped great big troughs out of the earth. And these were 20, 25 feet long. Boards were placed across the top. I shouldn't say boards. They They were pieces of wood from trees. And then you could enter from either side, and several families would stay at the bottom of each one of these. This happened at a location pretty close to what is present-day Pioneer Park. It was a very, very difficult first winter, and many, many people perished. The legacy of the LDS pioneers who came out west is quite extraordinary. Coming here for religious freedom, Brigham Young thought he was inspired to find the place for a temple, and soon after they entered the valley, he said, this is the place where we will build a temple to our God. And there, in a nutshell, a very brief one, is the story of the pioneer trek west. Join me again next week. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.